0: Ephesians chapter two. This morning we're going to look at verses four through twenty two. And the title this morning is Alive in Christ. Alive in Christ. Last week in verses one through three, Paul told us what we were in the past, and that was dead in our trespasses and our sins. And the material that he used for building the temple us, once dead, now alive. In verses 4, 5, and 6, and verses 8 and 9 here in our passage this morning, Paul tells us what he is or what man is in the present. And Paul emphasizes that we don't need to live any longer under sin's power. So let's begin with our verses uh, 4 through 6 in chapter 2 of Ephesians. And Paul says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul tells us what we are now, what man is now. The conjunction, <clears throat> but, right there in verse 4, beginning in verse 4, it introduces God's actions towards sinners in comparison with what they were or their problem in verses 1 through 3. They were dead in their trespasses and sin in verses 1 through 3, but in beginning of verse 5, it says, but God has now made you alive. What a wonderful that is he's made us alive God is the subject of the whole passage great differences are suggested by the words but God the penalty of sin and the power that sin had over us were miraculously destroyed by Jesus on the cross and through faith in Christ we stand before God believe it or not, not guilty believe it not guilty. God doesn't take us out of the world or make us robots. We still feel like sinning. And sometimes we will. But here's the difference. Before we became Christians, we were dead in sin. And we were slaves to our sinful nature. But now we are alive in Christ. And it's as Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave his life for me. Because Jesus resurrected from the dead, we know that our bodies will also be raised from the dead, and that we've been given the power to live as Christians here and now. These thoughts are combined in Paul's picture of sitting with Jesus in the heavenly places. Our eternal life with Christ is sure because we're united in His powerful victory. Look at verses 7 and verse 10. Verse 7 and verse 10. In that the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, Paul here tells us what he will be, what man will be in Christ. So God can always point to us, as he says here, so God can point to us always as examples of the incredible wealth of his favor and kindness toward us. And it's shown to us in all that He's done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. You know, someday, as I was looking at this, someday I'm going to stand, I'm going to be on display in heaven. And the angels are going to walk by and they're going to say, You see that guy over there? And this is about all of us. You see that guy over there? You see that girl over there? And they were lost. He wasn't worth saving. But here he is in heaven today. Why? All because of God's grace and kindness. He was saved. God will get the praise and he will get the glory. And for that, all through eternity. I'm not going to get any credit at all. I'm going to be there with the angels singing praises to God because Jesus saved me. Look at verse 8 and 9 now. Verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not that of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Salvation never originates in the efforts of the people. It always arises out of the loving kindness of God. And because of God's kindness, you have been saved through trusting in his son, Jesus Christ. And even trusting is not of yourselves It's God's gift to you as well. Everything that we do, everything we have, it's God's gift. When somebody gives you a gift, do you reach for your wallet and go, okay, how much do I owe you? No way. The right response to a gift is thank you. In humility, thank you. You can't earn God's gift of salvation. You can't pay for God's gift of salvation. You can't work for God's gift of salvation. You just receive it with thanksgiving and humility, knowing I don't deserve it, knowing there was nothing I could do to deserve what what God has given me. Because our salvation and even our faith are gifts. So we should respond with thanks, praise, and joy. These verses here finish this section. These verses that we've just looked at, they finish this section on the believer's past, present, and future. We were, past tense, we were dead in trespasses and sin, but God saved us by His grace, raising us now to heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and someday we're going to be in heaven displaying the grace of God. None of it depends upon us. None of it depends upon you, your own works, or your own goodness. For by grace, it says here, for by grace, His grace, you and I have been saved. You see, the emphasis is not on you and me. The emphasis is on God's grace. God's grace is an act of kindness given to the unworthy and to the undeserving. The grace of God has been defined as unmerited favor, undeserved favor. I don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. We become Christians through God's unmerited grace. Not because of anything that we've done. Not because of any ability of our own. Not an intelligent choice that we made. Or an act of service on our part. But out of thankfulness for this free gift, we will try to help and to serve others with kindness, love, and gentleness. And not just to please ourselves. And even though nothing we do or no work we do can help us obtain salvation, God's intention is that our salvation will result in service to him. He saves us to serve him. We're not saved just for our own benefit. We are saved to serve Jesus Christ and to build up the church. We're not saved to sit. We are saved to serve. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Notice that. What are we created for? Good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is what we will be. Paul says, we are his workmanship. The word workmanship means work of art, masterpiece. Think of it, you are God's masterpiece. The Greek word uh, for workmanship is poema, uh, poema. From where we get our word poem. The church is God's poem. It's his new creation. Paul isn't just talking about the local church. He's talking about the body of believers from the day of Pentecost to the rapture. From that time till the rapture. All the people that's ever been saved. We are his workmanship, his poem, his new creation. The real believers who are members of the local churches. That body of believers is his workmanship, his masterpiece, his new creation in Christ. What are we created for? Verse 10 says, for good works. It is God himself who has made us what we are. And he's given us new lives from Christ Jesus. And long, long, long ago, he planned that we should spend These lives helping others. And the same power that created us in Christ Jesus empowers us to do the works for for which He's redeemed us. Now understand, these good works are the marks of true salvation. They're the evidence of salvation. Righteous attitudes and righteous works, they result from the transformed life now living in the heavenly places. Paul told the Corinthians that there was in them, in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, an abundance of every good work. Paul taught Timothy that the believers are complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, 1 Timothy 3, 17. Jesus died to bring to himself a special people zealous for good works, Titus 2, 14. Paul's main message here is to believers who have been saved many years earlier. He's not showing them how to be saved, but that they were saved in order to convince them in the power that saved them is the same power that keeps them. Jesus has, uh, just as they had already been given everything they needed for salvation, they had also been given everything needed for faithfully living the saved life. Notice what Jesus said. In John chapter 14, verses, uh, uh, yeah, John chapter 14, he says, uh, I'm sorry, 15, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. He said, abide in me, and I abide in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit for without me, notice, he says, for without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered and they are gathered and they throw them in the fire and they are burned. The word abide means to stay in a, in, a, in, a, in a given place or thing. It means to stay. It means to continue in. As long as I continue in Jesus Christ, I am okay. I am secure. But when I walk away from Christ and I'm not abiding, I'm not continuing in him. And that's what Jesus said. If anyone does not abide in me, if anyone does not continue in a relationship with me, he said he is cast out as a branch and is withered and they gather them and throw them into fire and they are burned. The greatest proof of a Christian and Christ's power in them is their own salvation. And as a result, the good works that God produces in and through them. James said... It's not enough just to have faith. James said you must also do good, uh, do good to prove that you have faith. Faith that doesn't show itself by good works is no faith at all. And it's dead and useless, James says. And without good works, you can't prove whether your faith is real or not. But anyone can see that I have faith by the way that I act. These good works are expected of us. Because it said, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that's why James says, your faith is phony if there are no works present to go along with it. When we get, when we get to the last part of, of Paul's letter, we'll be told how we're to walk in a way that's commendable and acceptable to God. He said, while we're seated, seated up, in the, up there in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus, down here we're to walk in a way that will bring glory to his name. You see, we're, we're, we're learning down here. We're, we're walking down here and, and learning how to walk down here that we might walk in God's ways in the heavens. We're being trained here to go to heaven. Our salvation is something only God can do. And it's his powerful, creative work in us. And if God considers us his work of art, think of it, God considers us his masterpiece. And if he considers us his masterpiece, we don't dare treat ourselves or others with disrespect or as a second-rate work. Notice verse 11 and 12. Therefore... In light of what he just said in verses four through uh, through eleven, on um, four through ten, therefore, remember that you once uh, once that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Notice that we were in in terrible shape. Here's the method of construction now, of building the church. The church in Ephesus was made up mostly of Gentiles, that is non-Jews. There was just a small gathering of Jews there. Gentiles are called the uncircumcision by the Jews who were known as the circumcision. And because a Gentile wasn't a chosen one like the Jew, Israel became proud of her, of her position. And she looked down on anybody that was not a Jew. So they looked down on the Gentiles and then hatred grew between the two. And in these in these verses, Paul describes the sad life and the hopeless problem of the Gentile. It, it's also the perfect picture of any lost person, man or woman. And this is what it means to be lost. Notice in verse 12, without Christ. Notice he says in verse 12, he says, that at that time you were without Christ. Without Christ is the best definition of a lost man or woman. It's the opposite of being in Christ. Paul said also in verse 12, You were aliens from the commonwealth. That means you were, you were aliens from the citizenship of Israel. Or you were separated from being a citizen of Israel. That's the correct definition of a Gentile. The Gentile had no God-given religion like Israel. The Gentile had no right to claim the Old Testament promises for themselves that God made to Israel. We, we don't have that right as well. God didn't make those promises to us either. But you know what? We've been adopted. We've been grafted in. Notice what he said in verse 12 also. Strangers, we were strangers from the covenants of promise. You see, God made certain promises to the nation of Israel. The covenants that God made with Israel are still valid today, but no Gentile has any right to claim them. God promised the children of Israel, the land of Israel. And you know, we see the war going on today for people who think, other than the Israelites, think that you know Israel is part theirs or part of it. God gave it all to Israel. All of it. And one day they'll get it, but it will be on God's terms, not theirs. The promise God has given us is this. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. And also notice in verse 12, Paul said, they had no hope, having no hope. Look at all the religions of the world. Think about it. They have no hope. They have no hope. They can't promise resurrection because there's only one, only one Christianity. They're not very clear about what happens after they die. A lot of them don't know what happens after they die. And the cults, they don't offer any hope at all. They just put up a stumbling block that's hard for people to get over. Having no hope, think of that. Having no hope was the sad problem of the uh, problem of the Gentiles. To the lost man or woman, this life on earth is the most important thing to them. And if they miss out on the so-called fun here, then they're twice as hopeless. In verse 12, Paul said they were without God in the world. They were without God in the world. Now, this doesn't mean that God wasn't available to them. That doesn't mean that God wasn't around for them. What it means is that man has removed himself from God. That's why they're without God in the world. Like a lot of people today are without God in the world. God's available, but they have removed themselves from God. A man is godless. A woman is godless because they choose to be So. They're in darkness. They're wandering around with the rest of the lost human race. And that's why lost people spend their time drinking, taking drugs, going from job to job, relationship to relationship, running all over the world, looking for that joy, that peace, and that hope. Because they have none. They have a restless heart. The Bible says that God has put eternity in man's heart. And you see, that's why they're so restless. God has put eternity in their hearts and you know, only God can, can fill that, that empty void, that eternal void. But people are trying to fill that, that void, that, that eternity is in their heart. They're trying to fill that with all kinds of pleasures that the world offers them. But yet it doesn't satisfy them because it's an eternal void and only the eternal can fill that void. So again, what else is there for do, for them to do if there's, you know, if they're if they they're lost, if they have no hope. You know, if there's no if God is not for them in the world. You know, what 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 else is, that, is there for them to do? You know, we would have no hope. The only hope I could have here in this world would to be just to, to squeeze all the fun and life out of it as I can. To get all that I can out of it. And that's what people are doing. They're trying to live the, the life that just uh, of pleasure and squeeze all the pleasure and joy that they can out of this world because that's, that's all they have. That's all that they have. There would be nothing to look forward to outside of God. Nothing. That's what it would be like to be without hope, without God. This is is a horrible condition to be in. It's a horrible condition that Paul is describing here. But now notice, something has happened in verse 13. But now, again, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Thank you, Lord. In the temple was the court of the Gentiles, way off to the side of the temple. Gentiles were allowed to come into the court or into the temple, but there was a designated place for them and they couldn't go anywhere else. They were far away off in a corner. There was a de- designated place for them. It says, but now, but now for those Gentiles, those, those that weren't Jews, those Gentiles in Christ, everything has changed. They were without Christ, but now it says there in verse 13, they're in Christ. The distance and the barriers that once separated them from God have been removed. They've been brought near now, not by anything they did, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. Verses 14 through 17. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace and uh, to you who are far off, and to those who are near. So, when you come to Jesus Christ, you're not only brought into a body, you're also brought into a place where you stand before God equal to everybody else. Notice what Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. He says, There is no longer Jew or Gentile. Slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, meaning equal. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham and you are heirs God and, and heirs. And God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. So there should never be a position of separation for believers for any reason at all. We've all been made one in Jesus Christ. If you're a believer in Christ, no matter who you are, you and I are going to be together throughout eternity. Forever. The difference between the Jew and the Gentile is Jesus. Jesus makes the difference in everything. He's the peace that's been made between them. That middle wall or barrier, the hate between the two, between the Gentile and the Jew, has been broken down. It has been removed. Jesus has destroyed the barriers that people build between themselves. And because these walls have been removed, we can have real unity with people who aren't like us. This is true reconciliation. And because of Christ's death, verse 14 says, we're all one. He says, our hate, our hate for each other <clears throat> has been put to death. Verse 16. And we can all have access to the Father by the Holy Spirit. Verse 18. We're no longer strangers and foreigners to God. Verse 19. And we're all being built into a holy temple with Christ, who is our chief cornerstone. Verse 20 and 21. Man, there are a lot of barriers that can divide us from other Christians. Age, appearance, intellect, political views, economic status, race, doctrinal point of view, and the list goes on. One of the best ways to quench Christ's love is to be friendly with only those people that we like. Thank God Jesus has knocked down the barriers, and He's unified All believers in one family. We read in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. It says, And they, that is the church, the Christians, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the Word of God, and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, all who believed, notice, all who believed were together and had all things in common. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, notice they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. With all the people. That is a united church. That is a united people. You see, Christ's cross should be the cause of our unity. The Holy Spirit helps us look past the barriers to the unity that we're called to keep and to enjoy. And by Christ's death, Jesus put an end to the angry resentment between Jews and Gentiles caused by the Jewish laws that favored the Jews and left out the Gentiles. See, Jesus died to put an end to that whole system of Jewish laws. And he took the two groups, Gentiles and Jews, that hated each other. And he made them parts of himself. Verse 15 says, a new man. Notice, he calls it a new man. This means that Jesus made a single body or person out of the two. So he fused all believers together to become one in himself. We've been put together in Christ and he's made peace. It means that we now have peace with God and we should also have peace with one another. God's reconciliation is already done. It's complete. And He's ready to receive you if you're ready to come to Him. So the message that goes out is this. Be reconciled to God. And if you'll be reconciled to God, you will be brought, be brought into a new body a new body of believers and it doesn't make any difference whether you're Jew or Gentile. The color of your skin makes no difference. All are one in Jesus Christ. We have been made one new man and we should have peace. The emphasis in Paul's message is on the wonderful person of Christ. Jesus not only made peace by the cross but those who trust him are placed in him. And become new men. God had made a difference originally by separating the Jew from the nations. The Jew eventually dropped, uh, developed a spiritual pride. That "Oh, we're better than everybody else. That led to the hatred between the Jew and the Gentile. We are chosen. You're not. We're Jews. You're not. When a Jew and Gentile are placed in Christ. Hey, all of has gone. That's what makes the peace not just because of the new position, but also because something new has, become, has come to life. And Paul identifies this as a new man. And that's why Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, 32. He says, Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may, might be saved. The church is the new man. It's not that the Gentile has been elevated to the status of the Jew or the Jew lowered to the status of a Gentile. God has elevated both of them to a higher place. We're in Christ, in Christ, a new man. This is the building, the temple that God is building today. When the Jew and the Gentile come to the cross as sinners, they're made into a new creation, a new creature. They become a new man. The body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. The old temple that followed the Mosaic tabernacle had sections. It had sections, as I already mentioned. There were three entrances into the three departments. The outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. Then there were sections partitioned off for priests, for Israel, for women, and Gentiles. They all had different status. By Christ's death, he took away the veil and he became the way. He became the outer court. He became the truth, the holy place. He became the life, the holy of holies. And now, we come through Christ directly into the presence of God the Father. You see, the cross dissolves the barriers. And the gospel is preached to the Gentiles. It says, those who were once afar off and it's preached to the Jews who are near. Verse 18. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Jew and Gentile stand alike as sinners at the foot of the cross. When we are at the foot of the cross, man, we are all alike. We're all sinners. We have the privilege of having access to the Father through the Son, the Lord Jesus. Any believer has as much access to God as any other believer. And you notice we have the Trinity here in verse 18. Look again. For through Him, that is Christ, we both have access by one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to the Father. So again, a verse there that shows us the Trinity involved here in our salvation. Verses 19 through 20. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, here's the meaning of the building of the church. Paul reminds the Gentile believers that even though they were strangers and separated from God, their present position is made infinitely better. They're not strangers anymore. They're not foreigners anymore. They're now fellow citizens with the saints, with the other members of the body of Christ. Verse 19 says, Saints and members of the household of God. We're now fellow citizens. We belong to heaven right now. And we're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the apostles and the prophets personally laid down that foundation. The early church built its doctrine on that of the apostles. And Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. It reveals that Christ is the rock that the church is built on. He's the foundation. Without the foundation, everything built upon it falls. What is the most important part of your house? The foundation. And if the foundation crumbles... Everything built upon it does too. And that's why without Jesus Christ we have no we have nothing to build on. Paul said, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 21 and 22. In whom the whole building, notice being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So the comparison to the temple of the Old Testament is obvious here. And yet there's a difference revealed in the likeness. You see, there were several buildings, as I just mentioned, in the temple at Jerusalem. But I don't think Paul's referring to the different buildings. He means each individual believer is being built into the total structure like stones, individual stones. Peter said, you are living stones. Peter said it in the way he said, we are stones fitted in and built into a spiritual house. Paul speaks of a church or of the church as a temple that's currently under construction. And one day it's going to be finished and it grows into a holy temple. It's growing into a holy temple in the Lord. See, this makes it clear that it's not finished yet. The structure is also different than the temple. It's not just one stone stacked on top of another. This temple is growing and God is taking dead material. Those who are once dead in trespasses and their sins and he's making them alive and he's building the temple with them. The living born again stones are growing into a living temple. And The Holy Spirit places each dead sinner into the living temple through regeneration, through the blood of Christ. And it's called a holy temple. Not because we're holy, but because of Christ's righteousness. His holiness makes us holy. It's holy because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. The Holy Spirit lives in each believer. He's the second person of the Godhead. The church, the body of Christ, you and I are a temple of God in the Spirit. And when believers come together in a building to worship, the Holy Spirit is there. He's present. And in that sense, God is in that building. But when every believer has left the building, God has left it too. You know, before anybody got here this morning, this was just a building. That's all it was. Not any different than any other building in the city. When it's empty, it's nothing but wood, glass, concrete, whatever it might be made of. But the moment you walk into the place, God is there. Isn't that awesome? God is there. Why? Because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God is in you. So wherever you go, God is there. Again, it's just a building until you walk into it. God is not in any church building any more than he is in any other building. Today, God lives in believers, not buildings. And we've already mentioned that God has never lived in any building made with man's hands. And it's pagan thinking that says God lives in a man made structure. So, in closing, the purpose of the church as a temple is to reflect his holiness. Reveal the presence and the glory of God and witness to others on earth. That's our purpose. To reflect His holiness, to reveal His presence and His glory, and to witness to others on earth. And when believers gather together in a church, this is important, man. When we gather together in a church, the impression that the world should get, even today, is that God is in His holy temple The world the world should feel the world should feel that God can be found in a church service So here's the question can he is he found in a church service And maybe more people would be attracted to the church if they were sure that God was in the church Father help us God Help us to show to the world, to show to people, God is in the church. And the only time, if they don't go to church, or have ever gone to church, the only church they may ever see is us, Lord. What do they see when they see us who claim to be Christians? God-like, Christ-like. What do they see when they watch the things that we do, when they hear the things that we say. Father, do they see godly people or just other people like the rest of the world? Lord, help us to be that light that leads them out of darkness into the marvelous kingdom of light. Father, help us to be what we're called to be, Lord. Called to to, to reflect your light to reflect your your glory and to witness to others, God. Father, help us to be those that people would follow right into the church, Lord, because they want what we have. And so, Father, help us to be all that we're called to be, your masterpiece, God, your great work, the crown of creation, mankind. And, Father, help us to show the love of Christ Father, the the words of Christ, the behavior of Christ, God, the holiness of Christ. Father, that others may see it, want it, Lord, and know that God is for real. Father, we thank you for the offering that we will receive today, Lord. We thank you for your goodness, your generosity.